This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Today, I'm running this episode together with uh, my co-host and teammate, Stina Heikila. In today's episode, we're talking to Thomas Diaz, a Venezuelan urbanist specialized in digital fabrication and its implication on the future of cities and society. He's the co-founder and director of FabLab Barcelona at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia and is founding partner of the Fab City Global Initiative. He is also the director of the recently launched Master in Design of Emerging Futures at the aforementioned Institute. His research interests relate to the use of digital fabrication tools to transform reality and how the use of new technologies can change the way people consume, produce and relate with each other in cities. In our conversation with Thomas, we explore the democratization of production of goods mainly through technological progress and open knowledge sharing and how this might affect the evolution of platform-enabled ecosystems-driven production. We ask Thomas, through the lens of transformation, what new subjectivities and constituents are empowered to organize in ways that are different, whether synergistic or integrated with current globalization and digitalization trends. Of course, we cannot avoid touching on the changing landscape of risk and policy making, as we connect with Thomas in the midst of a global pandemic. We also talk about the future of education and the need to reconsider Western-centric values and ways of knowing. Enjoy the show. You can find the references mentioned in the show notes. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Today, we have with us Thomas Diaz, and we uh, want to start the conversation with Thomas, basically uh, exploring how and uh, if, uh, let's say, the democratization of uh, the production of goods and uh, mainly due to the technological progress and, and all this uh, massive open knowledge sharing movement might uh, affect, uh, let's say, the evolution of what we consider today a platform-enabled ecosystem-driven uh, production. And more specifically, we would like to understand together with Thomas how these transformations and the changes in policy making as well that we can expect in the coming decades, as well as the, these new risk factors that are emerging, you know, uh, since today we are living through this COVID outbreak. But, you know, our big question is how, you know, basically what new constituencies, what new players we will we can expect, let's say, to see coming uh, into the, the space of uh, fabrication and manufacturing. And uh, especially we are interested in understanding how much uh, these players will be synergistic, let's say, or integrated with also the current players like the incumbents and all these uh, globalized, um, let's say, supply chain uh, system that we uh, live these days. So, uh, Thomas, as a start, what, what do you see in the coming, uh, in the coming future uh, from this point of view? Well, thank you, Simone. Uh, I... I definitely think that, you know, somehow fiction has overcome reality uh, and what is happening today is something that we probably will not be anticipated in, in by any means, unless we are Bill Gates, of course, uh, in his famous TED Talk mm. from 2015. But basically, I think that, you know, uh, before jumping into, into that context, I think it's important to understand um, 
how we got here, no? And without without being so ex extensive in, in in explaining, you know, <laughs> thousands of years of story of humanity, uh, I think it's important to understand different moments of convergence, um, which uh, have been somehow part of our past, no? Um, you know, I am from Venezuela, uh, and for us, there is a very strong moment of convergence, which is uh, the 15th century and the discovery, quote-unquote, of, of America, right? Uh, what happened uh, at that moment is that at the same time, uh, which, you know, two new worlds clashed together and created somehow, I think, like a, one of the first versions of globalization, um, it's also that it was the same time in which uh, the printing press was invented. Um, and that somehow kept the, the acceleration of exchange of knowledge, which led later on to uh, somehow the Renaissance. And, you know, as you can see, I'm making like a huge, uh, huge uh, steps here. But then I think like uh, takes us to another important moment of convergence, which uh, for me uh, is the beginning of the 20th century, um, in which uh, we somehow invented uh, wireless communications, uh, we started to use a new a new source of materials and also a new source of energy based on oil, um, and somehow we introduced the assembly line or you know the the, the highly optimal and super fast way of producing goods and accumulating goods and shipping them around the world uh, using this new form of energy, which is supposed to be cheap. So, you know, we can skip uh, the computation revolution and so on, but then jump into the this moment of convergence that we are today in which we are seeing in one hand, uh, you know, the emergence of uh, distributed and networks, so distributed forms of organization based on the internet and and, and, and a more advanced forms of communication, more advanced than the printing press and more advanced than the wireless networks uh, invented somehow, quote unquote, by, by Guglielmo Marconi. Um, and this form actually, of this new form of organization actually changed something that is, uh, Maybe it's a big it's a big paradigm change, which is is the access to knowledge. So today we have access to knowledge as we never had before. Uh, it's access to information, good and bad. I think that we somehow not only uh, it's something that I say, but many people say that we are in the information obesity. Um, and um, and I think that uh, it's a moment in which we need to reframe the way in which things are distributed and in, in, in the way things. Uh, and in the way that um, knowledge is, is somehow administered, uh, administrated and somehow spread around the world. So I would, I would say that, that um, today we are in a, in a, in a super in interesting moment because uh, it's, a, again, a convergence, but this convergence has a different component, which is a change of paradigm in the way we access to knowledge. And we have the opportunity to, in anywhere, any part in the world, to have uh, information, knowledge, blueprints, files uh, that can be shared uh, instantly. And also, I think that the, the, the other important thing is to consider is that the, this moment of convergence actually includes other components, which is uh, the introduction or, or the advancements in synthetic biology and the capacity, that the capacity that we are having to edit and modify natural systems and create life. Uh, the synthetic intelligence that we are creating by using computers and, and being able to somehow process large amounts of information better than a human or even groups of humans. Um, and of course, I think like that there is a, uh, you know, the, since it's my field, is the capacity to turn bits into atoms and atoms into bits using digital fabrication tools, right? 
when you combine all this together and you put in the mix uh, the promise of the blockchain to organize, you know, uh, a new digital economy, then you, you realize that we are in a super interesting moment. But at the same time, we still see signs of where we're going back to the 19th and, then, and also the 18th century. So the question is how, how we're going to deal with this moment of convergence. Uh, it seems that any plan that we had before has been totally changed because the current situation um, with the global pandemics. So do you see this global pandemic as a, uh, an accelerator, a breakthrough, a change in a turning point? How do you see that? I think it's soon to make a, a strong conclusion. And I know that this is a great opportunity for people to play, to be the wizards of the future um, and have a, a, a point in history. I would say that we still need to see uh, for sure it's a source of opportunity, right? I think that, uh, you know, and I'm seeing it with my, my own students in the master that uh, I am directing with colleagues is that, uh, you know, how you you know, in the moment that we are today, how do you go back, and not into a classroom, because we cannot go back to a classroom, but actually how do you go back to the screen and you try to tell the students that, you know, we need to continue as if nothing has happened, right? Um, so the, the, the approach that we're taking is actually to reframe their projects and introduce the variable of, of the current the global pandemics, no? and the coronavirus and the new forms of working, relating with people, in the confinement and so on. But the question is, like, how much of this is temporary and how much of this is going to become permanent, right? Um, I think that uh, it's probably going to be longer than we think, but uh, I think the new normal that we are going to see is not this one for sure. Um, so I'm trying, I'm more or less giving you a response. I'm saying, yes, it's for sure uh, it's going to change things. Um, I think there is people that they... You know, there are two currents now. Some say, in, you, can, you can see how we're organizing extremes now. Like uh, some people say, oh, this is the end of capitalism. Uh, some people say this is, uh, you know, it's just like a, uh, an update of capitalism or a way to equalize capitalism in a way. Uh, and they are strong defense, you know, Slavot Sisek, of course, says it's the end of the capitalism. And then, you know, the more neoliberals defend that actually this is just a, a kind of a, an adjustment is how they call it. And it's the same way that you see the response from, you know, more cent authoritarian regimes to the corona treatment into the citizens and make them to follow instructions. Or the other ones, the more libertarians, try to tell the citizens to just develop their own immune system uh, against the virus. It's super interesting because even that you see the, uh, in dealing with these pandemics, you see the ideologies behind. Um, I don't know, uh, Simone, it's hard to say, but um, I think that the, 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 the deep root of the ideologies that, that we have, in the, especially in the political leadership and the way in the, in the how addictive is the accumulation of capital, I think it's going to be hard to just say that the, the virus is going to change, it's going to destroy them completely. So for sure, we're going to see an, an update, and, but it's, I think that it's up to us uh, somehow, not only to, to predict it, to predict what's going to happen, but somehow try to play a role on, on, on trying to make things differently, you know? And this is a great opportunity for that, for that. So, no, it's very interesting what you said, and I couldn't help uh, to think before our conversation today that, of course, that so many governments are probably going to turn their attention to uh, local production 
and be less dependent on global supply chains in a lot of things. So I'd be very uh, curious to hear what you think uh, in terms of the maker movement and so Mm -hmm. on uh, around this. I think that we haven't seen yet um, the real results of of the pandemic to really advance and say, wow, now governments are going to work on being more resilient. Uh, because what we are seeing is actually a shifting of, of, of power, no? And um, the way that China responded to, to the coronavirus had put them into a kind of a forefront of what is the, the fight against a, a global pandemic. The way South Korea is doing this is slightly different and it's quite interesting as well, which without being totally, uh, you know, a centralized regime, they are being able to somehow to control the spread of it. And then you have, you know, the uh, United States, which seems that doesn't understand what is happening. And then the UK, which is trying to differently, no? which is like driving in the other side of the road. Um, I think it's too early to say that uh, one or other nations are going to jump. Since the coronavirus, they're going to go and, uh, and, and go in, into, you know, relocalize production. I think it was a trend that was happening already before. Uh, and, you know, I would never expected for Fab City to have uh, somehow, I wouldn't say an, an undesired ally uh, in Donald Trump, no, when he claims like uh, um, that, you know, making America uh, or, or bring back the production to America. I, I think, you know, I have mixed feelings when, when some statements like that come into place uh, because, of course, I think that's, you know, the the less prepared person in the world to lead with the, the, the bigger superpower uh, in the planet uh, is in charge of this. But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense to relocalize production for other reasons and not for the nationalism and the other values that that persons like, like, like this uh, uh, defend. But at the same time, you see that uh, what I was trying to say before as well is like uh, China now being in the forefront of, of, you know, not only of manufacturing, but now even on dealing with a global pandemic, actually, it can even gain more power in relationship to the dependence, the dependence that the world has on the manufacturing that happens there. So we can go now to an even more centralized model of production in which China actually uses this capacity that they had to go before anyone else uh, uh, over the virus uh, to actually relaunch an even more aggressive uh, uh, international um, strategy to make more nations dependent of, of, of Chinese products. Uh, and I think that that's going to happen somehow. And it's happening uh, already with the medical supplies, no? Um, so this is what, I, what, what, again, like it comes to theories. It's going to be an adjustment of, of capitalism in which like it's going to be an update or, or it's really going to, we're going to be cracking the very first main principles of capitalism, no? Which is accumulation of the means of production and the distribution channels, and of course, the energy sources to move these goods around the world and, and, the, and the supply chains to, meet, to make these products. So I, I would like to be more uh, optimistic, uh, but that would be to be, I don't want to, you know, to lie to myself. Uh, I, I understand the size of a challenge. I don't want to rely on external factors. I think that we, we need to you know, to continue pushing to what we're doing with Fab Labs, with Fab City, with the different, different educational programs that we are developing as well, um, on trying to make uh, technologies more accessible and, underst- and make and, and help people to understand 
that the more they know on how to produce what they need to consume, uh, the more free they are. And I think that's, you know, I, I have to say that for many years I started to develop uh, part of these projects together with many other people in a, with a very global perspective. But now I have the, the feeling that we need to go into the hyperlocal and to start to produce evidence at the hyperlocal scale and start small and then scale up. Mm-hmm. That, that's a very interesting point, uh, Thomas, and it helps me to, to move into the next question that I wanted to share with you, because our, our duty here in this podcast and, and with this research we are doing is to really understand how the systems are changing and how they will evolve. And uh, my, my point here is uh, when it comes to this hyperlocalization and relocalization that uh, is essential in the picture that you are uh, outlining here, um, the, the question that I have is, uh, um, can we reasonably imagine that uh, in this process of, uh, I would say, the uh, universalizing the role of uh, technology in manufacturing and uh, embedding this technology into the local systems, uh, uh, can we expect also that uh, from a perspective of consuming our expectations need to change. Can we expect that uh, the uh, economy that uh, is evolving in the background, let's say, uh, through these processes that you are studying, for example, with Fab City, uh, will bring us to not just a Fab City, but also, I would say, a Fab Citizen, someone that is much less uh, specialized in in terms of uh, jobs, uh, much more able to both consume and produce. So, so I, um, you know, I, I always make a, a connection with this a very illuminating book from Wendell Berry called uh, the, the, the Unsettling of America, where he makes this point about agriculture and say, you know, basically when we detach the agriculture uh, from humans and we, uh, we transform that into a process, we uh, did, you know, completely um, transformed its nature. Uh, can we do the pa- same parallel with uh, manufacturing and, and craft machineship and production? Well, I think that happened somehow. Like uh, we detached, you know, if you look at the medieval, the medieval times, uh, and even if you, I mean, Indonesia now, and you look at the way in which, uh, you know, craftsman happens, which is similar to the medieval ages in, in, in Europe, it's quite incredible the the capacity that uh, you know the skills that people that probably don't know how to read has to you know to manipulate uh, and to play with a material in order to make something that they desire to create somehow. No, um, I think that the analogy with agriculture is pretty good because uh, somehow I think there is other I think there is other dimension to add to that, which is. Um, the, the, the time dimension, right? Um, and I want, you know, since you were quoting a book, I want to add a quote to your quote, which I think is quite complementary. It's the book from Peter Novak, and it's called Sex, Bombs, and Burgers, uh, which I find fascinating as well. And, and it talks about how, you know, by detaching ourselves ex- exactly from those processes of the agricultural work and the, and the provision of food as a, as a source of energy, um, we started to release time, right, from our, our everyday activities. You didn't need to take care of, of your crops and you didn't know, you know, when we, we were introduced by, you know, the microwave, then you, re- you reduce the time in which we were cooking. Therefore, you have more times to do more things. And what do we do? What do you do with that time? We're actually 
the, the, the ideal solution that we came with is to create an entertainment industry. So the entertainment industry is filling the free time that we created out of not being busy by looking for provisions of food for our, ourselves or for our families somehow, no? Um, and now, um, you know, the question is what happens when we, are de we detach ourselves even more from manufacturing and then, you know, from being craftsmen to have uh, craftsmen and craft, uh, craft women uh, to have, a, a, you know, centralized ways of production using factories. And we go to some kind of a giga factory type of Tesla thing, a black box inside full of robots and manufacturing goods shipped to us. Uh, then again, what, what is going to be the, the human experience again? No? If we are not in charge of our food, if we are not in charge of our goods, then what's the human experience then? Then we are again just, just going to be a target of a new upgrade of uh, entertainment experience tourism industries. I don't know if that makes sense somehow. And that's no, the, I think like that's those are the things that we need to revise, you know. And, and yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I sorry, like, sorry. Yeah. I, I wanted to echo this question on on does it make sense? You know, with with another question for you to help you and help us in this process. So, so the question here is, I think uh, we are we all agree that uh, from a philosophical and cultural perspective, we uh, we have this issue of. Uh, an economy that is completely detached and super specialized and, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, we feel like we need to reintegrate uh, production, uh, but also agriculture into uh, the local systems and becoming more resilient. Uh, the question I have is, uh, is it really possible? Uh, can we really achieve uh, uh, the uh, expectations that we are have now towards this globalized, uh, technologically driven uh, and universal uh, culture? Uh, and if not, what do we need to sacrifice? And another question that I want to add, uh, still as, as, as a matter of uh, reflection, what kind of organizational tools and, and new constituencies we need to uh, leverage on we need to empower so who is going to be the the architect of this uh, transformation and what do we need to sacrifice in this process if anything that's a, those are great questions um and if you ask me i think that the the, the again like a part of this change of paradigm and part of the distributedness of 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 intelligence you know intelligence per se is based on the articulation of many small components. You know, you can say like the human intelligence depends on the connection of the neurons, but one neuron is quite stupid. So, since we understand intelligence from this uh, from this this very basic distributed network, we cannot assume that there will be like a one architect. No, so I think that we need we need to be enabled to provide the connection between people, and I don't know. I know that the platform is a, is a, is a sacred word, word here, but I don't know if, if, if thinking about platforms is, a, is the answer as well, right? I think the platforms itself have, you know, I'm, I've been myself developer and, and, and founder of different platforms. And, and uh, when I think about platform, not just about a website, I, I think that we need to think about it like a, you know, a full stack that goes beyond the full stack that is describing software, right? And that full stack is something that we are working on um, on Fab City itself, right? Which is understanding that 
you need distributed infrastructure, you need new forms of learning, you need to support people to innovate and invent differently. You need those inventions to get and be implemented into the real world, into the cities. You need platforms to share those between cities. And then you need those to be changing the policy frameworks that actually allow people, you know, as in Spain, it was not allowed to produce or to consume energy that you are producing with your own solar panels until just a couple of years ago, right? So um, I think that understanding this full stack and understanding the platforms as not only something that enables people sharing digital content, but actually allows interventions in the physical space in a distributed way, but at the same time articulated, is part of that architecture with, I don't, uh, you know, I don't need, I don't think that it's going to be one single architect or, um, and when you said you're going to be the, who's going to be the architect, like, see, I, I think that it's going to be the, um, it's, I you know, I, I, I wouldn't say the crowd because I, you know, I'm not, I don't believe in populisms, and, and 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 you know, I don't know. There is a wisdom of the crowd, but the the, the crowd is not so wise. You know, if, if this sounds politically incorrect, I'm sorry. Um, but I think that you know, we need to create a spaces to nurture that new architecture somehow, and it's something that we not don't create as artificially and construct and build like a big base, you know, big kind of uh, foundations. And on top of that, we put big, a lot of walls and we put a lot of stone and concrete and glass. But actually, for me, it looks more than like a garden, no? It looks more like a field that, you know, you create, you make it fertile, you put the right seeds, you try to, you know, enable, to protect, to nurture, and, and somehow then you let things grow, you know? And that, that's the part in which I think that we humans, we are probably struggling the most, and especially the Western-centric views, and not on understanding this, you know, more holistic approach on how to enable this transition. Mm -hmm. And part of that holistic approach is to accept that we are part of something, but we are not the main part of that something. Mm -hmm. And that we are playing with other systems and we're playing not only you know, the Western-centric views, also, man, like uh, the world is so big. And you know, we in Europe I, are somehow like a lockdown in certain mentality. Um, same with America, with such an arrogant mentality about how the world should be, uh, that is gonna take us nowhere. I think that we need to go to the peripheries. I think we need to learn from that periphery because you know, I'm now in Indonesia and I can tell you, like, especially the Balinese people, these people that they really play with all the elements that are around them and they're trying to integrate them into the, their everyday life. Mm -hmm. We need to bring those learnings to the West. And that's the main challenge we have. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not technology. It's not, you know, it's te technology is going to be with us on that. But it's a main fundamental change that's, um, that is, is more simple than, than we think. That's an interesting point and uh, um, the question of institutions somehow. You, know, you, mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned the city, you, know, you mentioned policies, for example, when you were talking about the Fab City as a, as a stack of infrastructure, learning, support, policy making. And at the same time, yeah. you also mentioned uh, the, the new uh, cultural hegemony that probably we're going to see in the next decade uh, coming from China, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, you also mentioned this idea of holistic uh, point of view, which is, I think, very, very strong in Chinese culture. No? If you think about, for example, the, the, the Taoist perspective, you know, I, I, I heard once 
um, the the CEO of Higher Group, uh, Jean Grumin, saying, you know, quoting Lao Tzu during a conference and saying, you know, everything is part of a system. So I think uh, there mm-hmm. is this very systemic and collective uh, uh, worldview which is coming uh, uh, from the from the East, but at the same time it comes with a very strong uh, institutional and centralized uh, um, approach. Uh, so Correct. on one hand, on one hand we have this view, and uh, uh, we have this new role from the city, uh, from these uh, local institutions. On the other hand, we have this need of uh, more uh, collective policy making, and and uh, you know this new culture coming in. Uh, so so maybe another question that I would like to explore with you: uh, How do you see uh, this new? role uh, of institutions in uh, favoring and uh, riding uh, this trans- transition from a from a corporate centric world probably towards a more institutional centric world well i think that that this again this this um how you call it this um crisis that we have now we are seeing like a which are the institutions that come out and give responses to, to citizens. Um, and it's sad to see it somehow, I have to tell you, like, uh, like we are relying so much on centralized institutions. So now, now more than ever, we're going back to a centralized way of understanding the organization of society in which someone from very far away from you that you will never see in your life in person it's, de- it's de- determining how do you live, right? So we are seeing that in the minimum moment of real crisis, which is somehow threatening uh, human life, we are going back to the institutions that we trust. And unfortunately, uh, we are wired for so, many, for so much time on understanding that those institutions are the nation states somehow. But that, that's because, uh, you know, the nation states are the responsible of the energy that you use in your house. The nation states are somehow giving you the warranty as a financial institutions that give you the money or giving you the food or the roads or the airports and so on, right? So um, as long as we keep somehow that, you know, the centralized ways of, uh, of producing three basic elements, which are food, energy and goods we are going to still having to rely from those same and centralized institutions and what you say is totally true it's like uh, you know the you know if you look at, at, at as well as debate between jack ma and, and and elon musk somehow you you know i ended up fascinated by the way in which jack ma understands the integration of technology uh, into the people's life and automation and how robots can or, or you know or algorithms will replace human activity actually allowing us to be free and to be happy you know, and achieving happiness but I don't know if that happiness will be the happiness that the Communist Party of China will dictate or if that's happening hap- uh, happiness is going to come from my free will and if free, free will is something that we still we need to defend somehow as one of the values of the West. Somehow. So in a way, I don't know, again, Simone, the, the, again, like I could play to, be, to, to, to make predictions, but the, the new type of institutions, you know that I defend the role of the cities and, and even like a smaller, in a smaller level, we need a different type of institutions that are somehow giving more social response and, and, and local response um, 
to anything that's you know that that you as an individual need, but also you you, you in relationship with your community and uh, need. And that will come only when we learn to integrate new ways of producing and consuming. That will come only when we integrate into our everyday life. Like uh, we, we change this paradigm in which we are not just working to buy things to keep us alive, but actually that we can work on making the things that keep us alive available in different forms and all the different forms possible. And this is something that somehow now is a luxury. And, uh, and I think that that's totally wrong somehow, you know, We're, it's, it's, it's incredible how in such a little time, you know, we changed like uh, eating meat was a luxury 20 years ago. And now eating organic food is something that is a luxury uh, uh, for only a few, a few people, you know, uh, you know, the, in the 20 years ago, someone that was working with their own hands and doing stuff is someone that, you know, from a, a very low level and and now the the people that can dedicate time to work with their hands and so on it seems to be only the people in the elites you know so i don't know we're seeing like a, this change of paradigm so fast um, um and and i and i don't know when we're gonna see that transition happening onto the more local power but definitely it's something that the world is demanding for it the planet is demanding to enable local production, to detach from stupid authoritarian leaders, uh, and to give more space for social interaction around making something meaningful for society and not making social interaction just to, to gain likes in the fucking social media. So, so when you say we, uh, um, we need this, you know, when the world needs this, um, you know, also the environment needs this, um, my question again is uh, what uh, from from your understanding of the uh, production uh, and manufacturing process um, mm-hmm. what what uh, is this a, is this local production a, 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 a really capable enough uh, what are the issues you know I mean uh, what are the limits of this paradigm if they are uh, if there are limits that you want to mm-hmm. uh, express? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the main limits is that it cannot compete with the efficiencies that that centralized production has, right? And I'm saying these efficiencies, meaning that the capacity or the, the speed of production that centralized systems have uh, to create, again, um, to create stocks or, or to create uh, over the, like a, an offer that is bigger than the, than the demand, which is the fundamental basis of what we what we have in front of us uh you cannot compete with local production for sure right the other thing um you know the other limitations of local production is that it can be probably noisy uh it can be in the past it was dirty but i think that they can be less dirty now uh it involves probably more time for people to dedicate to work on it but anytime what what, anyhow what we're going to use the time for um, and you can keep like a listing certain risks that local production has, and I think they are probably endless, uh, Simone, to be honest, no? Because also, it's very comfortable and very convenient the way that we live in just sitting in your couch, you can press a button and you got something delivered the same day, you know, <laughs> how, how you beat that, no? Um, but on the other hand, I think that um, the way in which we are now, you know, the global economy is working now, 
is based on the assumption. And this is another interesting book that is called, I think, Seven, Seven Cheap Things That We Didn't Know About or something like that. But basically, is uh, I think that um, I think that we are now hiding the externalities of this current system of production and consumption, and these externalities are starting to give us a slap a slap system in our faces. No, we're starting to eat microplastics. Uh, we're starting to we're breathing air that is is super toxic. Uh, I can I can tell you from living in Barcelona. I'm not in Indonesia, and the and the ocean is full of plastic, uh, and somehow you you see that uh, that we don't want to see what is behind me pressing a button in my mobile phone to get uh, you know uh, speakers delivered in my house in the same day, and that's a lot of you know cheap labor, which is not cheap. That's a lot of cheap materials that are not cheap, but actually they are depending on authoritarian regimes controlling uh, supply chains. That depends on authoritarian regimes controlling sources of energies based on oil, uh, and that follow the oil. I tell you, follow the oil and tell me that probably the only democracy that has large amounts of oil is 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 Norway, but still it could be criticized. So, in a way that you know, let's make a fair comparison on which are the real externalities and put on top of the table. Then the discussion will be will be more fair uh, in relationship with centralized versus versus local production. Uh, that's a very good point, and yeah, I think whatever we try to do, we cannot uh, remove this convenience question and convenience argument from the table. So we yeah. need to we need to yeah. reckon with this. Uh, so Stina, please go ahead. I, I know there are a little bit of delays because the the, the connection is a bit too busy these days with the COVID, which every, uh, where everybody's working from home. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. No, that's. Uh, I I just wanted to um, ask a little bit more on this because I agree that it's very important now to resist this tendency to maybe um, become nationalistic, like we already mentioned before, and to um, uh, resort to centralization, centralized institutions, uh, which somehow is mm-hmm. counter that trend. And I think uh, what I would be interested to hear more about is that sort of. So how do, can how do you tap in? to the good parts of globalization, like let's say, uh, like open knowledge and this mm-hmm. access to information. And what do you see as the type of technologies uh, emerging that could facilitate a more local empowerment, but in a connection to a global mm-hmm. uh, knowledge sphere? Well, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm one of a person, I think I'm, 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 I consider myself a, a lucky person to be able to, to enjoy the benefits of globalization. No, I'm, I'm, I, I have to say that I'm a self-learner myself. No, uh, I don't know if that's correct to say, but you know, I managed to learn through the internet a lot. Uh, I, 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 you know, luckily and probably, again, like living in the, in the contradictions that we live, I've been able to travel many places in the world and get in touch with different cultures. Um, and somehow speak the same language and, and in a way be not, not speak the same language, meaning like I speak in English, but uh, somehow feeling like we are part of a kind of a shared system of values. No, um, That's something that is quite unique from, from, from globalization. And, and somehow I think that there is an, uh, an intrinsic uh, message uh, inside the, you know, what, what is to have a connected world that you can now have, you know, you know, this overload of, of, of internet uh, 
cables uh, is happening because we are all connected somehow, no? And then due to this physical limitation, now we are we can even be more connected, which is somehow like a weird and, and, and contradictory again. Um, but the message I was I was mentioning is that this connectedness uh, is not only about bits, but also it's about natural systems. It's also about uh, you know the the global supply chains. It's also about uh, how I, what I consume every day, um, and starts to understand that the globalization in those terms, I think, is 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 one of the things that we we somehow you know have to thank to this process of getting to know beyond our small village, getting to know beyond our own country, getting to know more people beyond, you know, our own continent somehow, no? And then that's that expansion of vision and making us part of, of something bigger than we that uh, that what what we know or what we knew so far. So that for sure I, I stay with that. I stay with the convenience part, which is something that we need I agree with Simone that we need whatever we we come with, it needs to be convenient as well. And you need to be satisfied of, with being part of whatever we come with. It shouldn't come from a, you know, imposition. It cannot be an authoritarian a measure to say, you don't consume this, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, it needs to make people willing to do it. It needs to make people wanting to be part of. It needs to make people, you know, a part of a new, I would say, you know, idea of what comfort means, no? Uh, and what is good for you. Because again, what comfort means now, which is sitting in front of a TV, uh, eating McDonald's and drinking Coca-Cola, is actually, is the long term is super stupid for you, right? It's super, it goes against you. So that makes like a stupid decision somehow. So it's not convenient at the end, right? So that convenience should be more like a wide convenience. It's like a, let's see convenience in the long term. What my decisions, how affect the tomorrow, how my decisions affect the well-being of the ones around me, of the systems around me. And therefore, I make a more convenient decisions for, for not for the just now, for also for, for the future, for, for other systems beyond myself. I think that's super important about to take from globalization. And then, Stine, if you can, repeat, uh, Stine, if you can repeat the, the last part of the question. Uh, which I just slipped out of my, yeah, my, my head. Yeah, it was about uh, what kind of technologies uh, could help to enable yeah. the local empowerment, but tapping into a global knowledge space. Correct. Well, I mean, you know, part of the work that we have done developing the FabLab network and, uh, and now FabCities is to tap into technologies that are kind of a standard, you know, like a computation is quite standard. Uh, digital fabrication is, is based on standard, but they are technologies that, that are standard in their basic components, but they are that highly customizable. And then actually you can create applications on top of that that makes not only the tool itself different, but also the application of a tool different in every context. No? So that's why you know, a CNC machine could be helpful in Iceland of the 17 Icelands of Indonesia or uh, in the center of New York, right? Because it can provide, uh, you know, a, a tool to develop an application that is meaningful or that is useful for anyone uh, that is around it. But the question is, like, uh, who wants, who knows how to use it, how to use it, with which purpose is to make a business and to create an extractivist model around a small village in an island on Indonesia, or is actually to provide uh, somehow of infrastructure to the villagers and improve the well-being of people, you know, on the as long as we keep under the same logics of, of extra extractivism and uh, 
an accumulation of, of, of wealth somehow on behalf of whatever the fuck everything else is around me uh, is, then uh, for sure the tool will be always conditioned to those principles. So I think the tools are not enough. Um, one of the things we're starting to explore, and that's part of uh, the reason that I am here in Indonesia, is to set up an institute of technology and design that is going to explore these connections between local knowledge, tradition, wisdom, a different level of wisdom, and, and those very advanced technologies. And we hope that that becomes like a learning space to figure out how these relationships are. I think that rather to think about solutions, one of my learning lessons so far is that we need more spaces for real learning. You know, like a, if you think about uh, what traditional schools try to do is somehow they try to educate people. No, it's like, a, you know, the big names, you know, the Ivy League schools, they try to stamp in your face their 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 brand and they, they, they are educating you to be part of something that according to them works. But that thing doesn't work anymore. Therefore, I think that we need to move away from educating ourselves or educating others and creating learning spaces in which we, we, we definitely figure out together uh, how the architecture is going to work for the, next, uh, for the next 10 years and the next 100 years. This, uh, Thomas, reminds me a very good point from Zach Stein from a few weeks ago, a few months ago, he said, uh, we are pretty much used to uh, an economy, uh, an education that is in service of uh, the current economic model. What we Correct. need to figure out is to have an economic model that is in, in service of our next uh, uh, educational leaps towards what, what comes up in, in the next decade. So I think uh, that's a very good um, note uh, to end our conversation. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, thanks very much for being with us. I think uh, we got some very powerful insights. And, uh, you know, Super. thanks again for being part of our conversation. Thank you, Stina. Thank you, Simone. Um, it's been a pleasure. Sorry for the little box of, of the sound or whatever. But, yeah, I'm in the tropics and uh, with an overloaded internet due to the corona COVID crisis. Times, COVID times. Thank you again, Thomas. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.